Good morning. My name is Marie White. I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the podcast called The White Bikini. I am here with my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nick? Very good. I'm happy to be here with you today. So when I started the outline of everything we were going to discuss, and it was only about a week ago, I found myself literally changing it almost on a daily basis with a constant update of news and issues. So it's incredible how quickly everything's changing on a daily basis any longer. Turn on the news in the morning and it's an entire different narrative than the information you see um, being broadcast uh, that evening or that night. And of course, we're not even talking about social media at this point. We're just discussing traditional broadcast media. So you're absolutely right. It is an ever-changing, ever-dynamic field of information. So when I started my outline, I did start with a couple different things, but in the last 24 hours, I think the story that has caught my attention is that the pandemic is over. And even Dr. Fauci is saying that it is exiting the country. Hmm. Well, I'm inclined to trust Dr. Fauci. I think while he has made mistakes, everyone has made a mistake. And let's not forget that uh, COVID-19 is considered a novel virus, meaning we don't have any experience with this particular uh, viral strain. So everyone, even the experts, were learning on the job. But if Dr. Fauci believes that we're exiting the pandemic um, and that we're seeing the last days of, uh, let's face it, what we're really talking about um, are the last days of the restrictions and mitigation strategies that local and uh, federal governments across the world have implemented. Um, I think it should give us um, some sense of relief, but I still think we need to be cautious. Um, and, and I think Dr. Fauci himself would say as much, but I, I think there is room for optimism. I agree. I think some of my confusion and i think during the pandemic i'm gonna honestly admit that i'm always a federal i think everything's done at a federal level and i can see during this pandemic that my lack of understanding has really been brought to my attention because i feel that from the beginning this should have been managed at a federal level but now i'm comprehending it's a state level well, I, I think there, I mean, the federal government definitely, we're a federal system. So there's there's room for uh, federal, state, uh, and local authorities to intervene. But the, the problem, I don't necessarily think, um, is, as you describe it, to, to my mind at least, it, the problem is one of uh, competing political philosophies. That's really the problem. It's, it's, um, when Donald Trump was president, the left opposed them um, automatically. While I do think Donald Trump was uh, irresponsible and made some very crucial mistakes, the left just reflexively opposed them. And when Joe Biden became president, the right reflexively opposed them. So the bigger problem, um, yes, I, I, I do agree. I just want to stipulate that that I do agree that I think a strong federal response is necessary to coordinate the states. 
But the problem is that we're a fractured society. And without digressing from the topic at hand, um, we're talking about problems that predate the Civil War in terms of ideology and philosophy of different regions of the country and every opportunity that state and local authorities have to oppose um, their ideological um, competitors in government, they will, even at the cost at sane public health policy. I agree. And I guess some of my concern is, granted, the numbers had jumped up a month ago and suddenly we were mailing out tests and now you can get free masks at CVS. People are getting them mailed to them. As a cautious person and a person that's been very afraid, as you know, of the coronavirus, I don't know how in a month we're going from totally masked and then suddenly it's in another two months we're going to be fine. I am a fan of Dr. Fauci. I do trust his, and when I believe when he says it, but I guess the word I'm looking for, and maybe it's something that's not gonna happen with this, is are we in an endemic phase or have we reached herd immunity? So both of those questions, unfortunately, I don't have the um, public health uh, knowledge or the sort of- uh, Of course, now um, I know. Viral, um, <laughs> hurt, uh, the, the epidemiological, that's what I'm looking <laughs> for, epidemiological um, know-how. So I will just speak as a lay person. Um, I, I, from what I've gathered is that we're entering an endemic phase where it will function much like the common cold or the seasonal flu. Um, meaning that it will stay with us and unfortunately continue to wreak havoc among people of a certain health and certain um, people dealing with certain health conditions. Um, it will put, it will continue to put those people at risk. But I think for the majority of the population, um, it will be probably not as deadly as the the um, the viral strain that we encountered in 2019. Um, so I, I think that's, like I said, without any any epidemiological expertise, that that's my sense of what I've gathered from the experts, um, which means it's something we can live with. Um, but we also have to be realistic that you know the 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 seasonal flu claims thousands of lives every year in the United States, and COVID nineteen seems like it's going to be another. Um, disease that will continue to claim thousands of lives in the United States on top of the seasonal flu. And I do feel now with the vaccinations and the ability to treat it at a higher level, that now that we've gone on to two to three winners, that now the understanding is, and there are some exceptions, and to anyone that's experienced that, it's my sympathies to them. But a lot of the people that passed away were over 65. Yeah, but you know, I, I think to push back a little bit, 65 is not the end of the road. No, um, I agree. In, okay. It's, but I guess know, what I mean in, is, do we really want to hold everyone accountable? I don't know how to manage it. Do you? I don't think you can. I don't think you can hold everyone accountable. I, I think Part of the problem in the United States and in other Western democracies is that 
um, the same kind of individualistic ethos that has led us to, you know, the notion of championing the individual over the group has certain consequences. And this kind of individualism means that people will practice their own self-interest. And the kind of shared sacrifice that I think as a culture, we like to believe that we would do, um, the evidence suggests that for about 30% of the population here in the United States, that just doesn't apply. Um, they will do it even to their own detriment. There are literally people, as I'm sure you've heard, who are in the hospital who want to believe ridiculous, absurd ideas. They'd rather believe that they're dying of cancer than they're dying of COVID because they're so wedded to the idea that COVID is not real or to acknowledge COVID is to essentially score political points for people that they don't agree with. So we're in the theater of the absurd right now when it comes to a huge part of this culture. And part of it is just inbred, is that we're a highly individualistic society. We don't believe necessarily in strong common purpose and sacrificing um, individual needs for the group um, well-being. And I'm not making a judgment one way or the other. I'm just saying it's a consequence of the culture that we live in. Yeah, and this is probably as we, I think we are now, but that's fine. That's what we're here for is to talk. You and I have spoken about this over the last 10 years. And I remember a book coming out probably about 20 years ago. It was regarding the lack of community. And I'm sensing that now the pandemic has brought to light how unconnected we are, even in our small communities. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the pandemic has revealed um, the underlying faults in our society. I think America functions much like an old house that has been plastered over or wallpapered over. Uh, there are some cracks in the structure. There are some settling in the foundation. Uh, and that's not to say that there are any perfect societies out there. I mean, society is a human construct. Uh, anything humans do will almost invariably have some flaw. But I think we've run, perhaps since the 1950s, we've run, this society has functioned on the ethos of American exceptionalism. Um, you know, we went through World War II and, you know, we didn't have to face the horrors of uh, bombings and soldiers marching through a street and so that, that kind of gave us this weird sort of existential idea that we're special that horrible things happen in the rest of the world but horrible things don't happen here because we're protected perhaps by some divine force and i think you know from the 1950s up until um i want to say the last maybe 20 years I think Americans have bought into that myth a little bit and it's lulled us into a false sense of security about our place in the world and who we really are. And so we've been running on myths for quite a few decades now. And COVID revealed some of the underlying uh, ugly truths about American society and the failure of American democracy. And I agree. I feel like we were living in a house that was kind of, as you said, wallpapered, spackled, 
And I feel like now in some ways we're moving out of that house and rebuilding something new. Yes, and with any birth, uh, there's gonna be pain and it's gonna be messy. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. The problem is that what we're birthing right now, we're not really sure, you know, we don't know if it's Damien from the Omen or, you know, some new benevolent um, multicultural society that will provide for people uh, more so than the previous. Um, I think there is definitely a force, a movement of um, a fascistic movement, an underlying totalitarian uh, belief system that is not, it's not new to the United States. It's been there. Um, certainly, you know, Charles Lindbergh and his like revealed, revealed that in decades past, but I think we're competing for whatever this new America is. I think what we're experiencing right now um, is that there are two tribes in this country and they're both fighting for what that identity for for the identity of whatever that new uh, american the, what the new american is going to be and what that new american value system will be and i think that's why people are fighting so hard people are willing to put their lives on the line people are willing to kill their fellow americans to define the identity of that new child so to speak i think the difficulty for me is you know, a lot of my, I don't want to say experiences, because I think in hindsight, I'm kind of embarrassed how naive I was, but I came up growing up in the the Reagan era. I, I do remember Carter's presidency, but I remember at the time people were kind of like, he's a hippie president. He's not really has a view of all America. And then we jumped into Reagan and it was, all of the talk about how great America is, but we really weren't because we weren't really building it on a good foundation. It was kind of like, you know, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Um, and it's funny as you're discussing that, what comes to mind? Are you going to believe the guy that tells you that you have to put in some hard work and uh, there's some problems uh, with the way you're doing things and we need to improve? Um, or are you going to believe Santa Claus? I mean, Reagan, part of Reagan's appeal was he constructed this, this image of the great father, the great father figure. And America was so, because of its puritanical backgrounds and, you know, its patriarchal um, lineage, it, it appealed. It, I mean, Reagan was perfect. I mean, coming out of the 1970s, the Iran hostage situation, the gas situation, stagflation. Uh, I think America wanted someone to tell them that everything was going to be okay. And that's what Reagan represented. Um, but the world doesn't work like that. The world is flawed and there are problems. But Reagan made people feel good. And that's not a bad thing, but you can't live in a fantasy for too long. Eventually reality will creep in at the edges. And, and I think Reagan bought, I think Reagan bought us a few decades of enjoying the myth of America. Um, but now, you know, as Malcolm X said, you know, chickens have come home to roost. 
we're paying the price of neglect. We neglected our cities. We neglected investing in our communities. Part of that whole idea of the individual is responsible for himself and society be damned or the collective be damned. And I, I think what we're seeing is that some people would say that benign neglect that Reagan and let's not forget uh, George H.W., his president, then president uh, after him, they brought they brought that about. And I think you have a generation of millennials who are just they're not interested in the leave it to beaver. Daddy knows best mythology that I think baby boomers in particular and and Gen Xers to a lesser extent wanted to believe in. I agree. And, you know, I look, for example, with the pandemic, when we were running out of masks, people were so startled that everything was being made in another country. And I was a little shocked that where have you been? Uh, we've been living in the myth. Uh, you know, let's not forget that, you know, you know, let's, this is perhaps another topic, but consider what are the underpinnings of the mythology of American um, exceptionalism or what makes American society works? And part of it is we like to believe in the idea that um, make things cheaper, better, faster. Well, that's it's not as simple as that. Cheaper, better, faster means that uh, a child in a developing country um, rather than going to school is working in a factory cheaper better faster means as you said you know to go back on point to go back on topic that a pandemic occurs and america seems flat-footed in being able to um, produce masks and you know like i said yet another topic for discussion is you know the consequence of globalization We've constructed the society and it works pretty well for, I want to say, 60% of this country, maybe 65% of this country uh, who identify themselves as middle class or higher. It does work pretty well. I mean, let's not kid ourselves that uh, the standard of living for the average American in terms of consumerism, creature comforts, access to health care, healthcare, food, water, shelter. Um, yes, you got to work your butt off for it. But it's there and it's available, but it comes at a cost. And it means that uh, things, uh, duties, jobs, works that would take place in this country, they've been outsourced. And that's how we get cheaper, better, faster. Uh, but as I alluded to initially, uh, it comes at a consequence. It means that when bad things happen, you don't necessarily have the, the resources to react immediately. Within your country, you have to react um, by outsourcing that that demand to other countries. And I would imagine those other societies want to protect their populations. And so you get back into the sort of this <laughs> fight for survival. Uh, I, I would imagine that if you are the leader of China, um, you want your population to be masked first at the you know expense of masking the United States and Europe. Uh, I don't think Americans see it that way. And so, you know, we just, we, 
I think part of the problem is that we don't want to see how the sausage is made. That's really what it comes down to. You know, we talk about buying into the mythology, but um, we just don't want to do the hard work. We don't want to see the messy things because it's unpleasant, it's expensive, and it comes at a either personal price to us or a personal price to people we care about. So we go along to get along. And speaking of presidencies, it's ragging George H.W. Bush. And I do remember, and this is probably another layer of a conversation, but when Bill Clinton was president, I remember all of the concerns and anger over NAFTA. And I think that, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, and at the time I was like, yeah, what's the big deal? But I, I clearly remember a gentleman came into one of the retail jobs I was working and he was looking at the labels and he was going on about made in America. And I was like, Oh man, take a seat. He was right. Yeah. But what's the alternative? The alternative is that we try to keep manufacturing these things in the country and yes, it would be better prepared, but um, then we couldn't sell those goods to the rest of the world. He's Agreed. right. It's, I think it's one of those things where both sides are right. So what's the trade-off? Well, yes. I, I think I mean, the like, trade-off was for that generation of the mid-level baby boomers, not the people that were born in the 40s, more of like the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Everyone assumed they were going to be working at these jobs forever. So I it think, goes to I, that lack of community that these companies were bought out by people who no longer lived in the communities where they had their employees and they felt a lack of connection or responsibility. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, and, and it's funny because that betrayal, you know, the, going back to a metaphor I used before, the chickens came home to roost under Clinton. But let's not kid ourselves that, you know, this movement started in the, I want to say the seventies, um, you know, with Bethlehem steel, yep. um, and other manufacturers along the Rust Belt, um, prior to, prior to Clinton arriving in office. So Clinton arrived in office in 92. So it had been going on for the, uh, for what, 20 years prior. So almost a quarter century before Clinton became president that motion that movement began um is just you know the 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 timer went off when when clinton came into office and and people started to see the consequences in stark relief but we are a capitalist society so you know this is this is the conflict i think that americans have because we bought into the mythologies that we believe in individual freedom collective responsibility we want businesses to succeed and thrive, but we also don't want them to leave. And we, we, so in a sense, you know, it's, it's, we're trying to have it both ways and it's just not rational. So we have to make certain sacrifices. And part of the problem from a political standpoint, I think is people who politicians specifically who make those sacrifices or speak about those sacrifices and who try to um, come to some sort of equitable uh, position, those politicians do not get elected. It's the firebrands 
it's the reactionaries and the radicals. Those are the people that get elected and they want it all. And so we just keep digging the hole uh, deeper. As consumers, we keep consuming the products that we criticize and we keep electing the politicians that reinforce the status quo that we're criticizing. So I don't know. I mean, you, you talked about the, the birth or maybe I did talk about the birth of the new American identity, that sort of new American man, woman. I, I don't know what that person is going to look like. I agree. I don't know what we're going to look like. And I don't think it's if the pandemic hits an endemic and we kind of come out of that fog, I still don't think it's going to be a little bow on a box. It's no, it's, it's going to be messy. Um, and, and I, as we, as we rid the, rid ourselves, you know, remove the scales from our eyes and we start to peer deeper into the mythology and see the inner workings and the inner um, malfunctions, if you will, of American society. Uh, I think we have to deal with what you're describing. We, you know, that things aren't working and things haven't been working for many decades. And I think in the next few months, six months to a year, and we'll be here to talk about it, I'm curious, and I feel optimistic, but I do have the question of what's next. Yeah, I don't think anyone knows. Um, a shift in the political fortunes of the Republican Party. And I think the country jerks back to the right and all the consequences that comes with that. If the Democrats either split congressional power uh, for the next few years, or if they retain power, then I think we sort of tread water um, for the next two years or so, two to three years. Um, without that radical movement. But the problems are there. We're feeling the pain of neglect. And no, and we're going to need to make some difficult sacrifices. And we're going to need some truth tellers. Um, that's I like what that. I see. I don't see any easy answers. Nicholas, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's a wonderful topic of conversation. I enjoyed it. I think we have a lot of things to think about as a country. I'm always optimistic that we will get where we need to go. And we do agree that growth is painful. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you.